This is 112BK, coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, a Brooklyn-based climate scientist and a recent study that should concern us. And with Veterans Day this weekend, a look at veterans, services in New York City, plus a film festival about black soldiers. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and thanks for joining us today. So my producer wanted me to vent for him. Ross got a call this morning from a collection agency for MTA bridges and tunnels for unpaid tolls. Now, he says there were some extenuating circumstances for his failure to pay a couple of toll fees. It's, it is complicated, but there were. Okay, okay. Not getting the mail, different addresses, yada, yada, yada. Who opens their snail mail these days anyway? I'm not going to defend him for that. But as you all know, most city bridges and tunnels don't have actual booths anymore. They have those sensors that read either your license plate or your easy pass. But those sensors are not in the same place as the toll booths once were. And there's no warning. I guess he keeps his easy pass out of sight until necessary. Okay, maybe another bad idea. But what's crazy is that they're now charging him a late fee, $100 per missed toll payment. $100 for missing an $8 payment. That's outrageous. And all this is to say, don't delay in paying those toll notices. Don't be like Ross. You'll regret it. Coming up, a Brooklyn-based climate scientist with a warning, and some folks to talk about veteran services and the veterans' experience. But first, a few things. The Jehovah's Witnesses are down to one final property in Brooklyn, which for the past 108 years has been their headquarters. I had no idea. At their height, they owned 4.5 million square feet of Brooklyn property, which included residential, office, and industrial, plus one house of worship, mostly in Brooklyn Heights and Dumbo. Their printers were also here, and that was a formidable job, since they're still one of the world's biggest publishers, which I also didn't know. So why Brooklyn? It was a hub of commerce and the location allowed them to welcome visitors and potential congregants coming over the bridge or into the port. But times have changed. The real estate is valuable and it was time to move on or up to upstate. Notable Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, are Prince, who converted in 2001, the Williams sisters, the Jacksons, and Biggie Small's mom is also a witness. After the just-completed sale of 74 Adams Street, they are down to a single building at 1 York Street. Incidentally, their headquarters building, which boasted their iconic watchtower sign, was bought by a group led by Jared Kushner. They plan to take down the beacon. Gotta do it. We told you yesterday about a father's concern over Brooklyn moving to Manhattan. Today, of course, we bring you an update. Father visits Brooklyn in Manhattan. Yes, a day after it was reported that soccer great David Beckham was worried about his son Brooklyn living and studying overseas, he decided to pay him a visit. He touched down yesterday and the two were seen on Instagram living it up at Lucali. Now if we could only do something about all this Manhattan moving to Brooklyn. Bloop. Stop the presses. A Beyonce themed pop-up bar is coming to Brooklyn next month. Yes, on December 1st, the female-owned cocktail bar, Leanda, will morph into Slayenda and get decked out in disco balls and glitz and even print menus on Beyonce Christmas cards. A holiday beehive in the borough. We should note that Leanda has been rated one of the top cocktail bars in Brooklyn. I wonder if this Slayenda place will be able to carry their water. 
and a brief update on the situation with the closing of DNA Info and Gothamus. Staff reps are currently in discussions with management about their severance, which was originally reported to be three months pay and one month severance. And the union is still planning legal action. We'll continue to update you as we learn more. Up next, a Brooklyn-based climate scientist says, even if we turn out the lights tomorrow, the planet will continue to warm. Stay with us. It's not getting much attention in the media, but this week and next, delegations from countries all over the world are meeting in Bonn, Germany to discuss the next steps toward meeting the Paris Climate Treaty goals. Yes, the U.S. has sent a delegation, despite the Trump administration's plan to withdraw from the treaty. And maybe you've heard that said delegation plans to promote fossil fuels, as if they were a bunch of John D. Rockefellers and it was 1870. Hey, did you hear about this amazing stuff coming out of the ground? And you might also have heard it announced from Bond that Syria has decided to join the Paris Accords, leaving the U.S. as the lone holdout in the world. Why are we talking about this? Because, well, we care. And because a scientist affiliated with one of the top climate research institutions in the country resides here in Brooklyn. And he recently co-authored a study that lends, that lends more urgency to the argument for cutting carbon emissions. Robert Pincus, welcome to 112BK. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. So tell me, as, like, you know, as someone who doesn't always get all the jargon and, you know, seems to be missing a few pieces every once in a while in this conversation, what did your study actually find? So the study is about a concept that's known as committed warming. And one way to think about that is how warm will it get if we turn off all the lights today? So mm -hmm. if we ignore the John D. Rockefellers, we take uh, massive steps to retool our economy and we stop emitting today. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not a very realistic situation, right? That's, right? that's not what's going to happen. But what's valuable, it's valuable from a, it's an interesting question, we would say, in the physical science world, because it tells you a lot about sort of the momentum of the climate system. Mm -hmm. Just like if you're driving down the highway and you take your foot off the gas, the car does not stop. Right. Contrary to what people often expect, it turns out that if you stop emitting and you stop increasing the, uh, the opacity of the atmosphere, the planet keeps warming up. Mm -hmm. um, that it'll come to some equilibrium. It'll come. It'll stop warming after a several thousand years. That's the time that it takes for the deep ocean, all the energy to go into the deep ocean and and warm the entire planet. Mm -hmm. But um, it'll keep warming until the end of the century, um, wow. which is sort of what I think of as being the human timescales. My children being of the age where they might actually make it to the uh, the end of the century. Right. And are these surprising findings, the things that you're finding? Not from a physical science point of view, but it turns out um, a sociologist got in touch with us after we published the study, and it turns out that most people think that if you stop emitting, then the planet gets cooler right away. Yeah. And there's some there's some interesting news as part of that. So, so what we did that was different than what other people have done is that most people have looked at climate models. So they've mm -hmm. taken these big computer codes, their descendants or their cousins of the same models that we use very successfully to predict uh, the weather for this week and next week. Mm -hmm. And um, and they've just played that game and they've said, what happens if we turn off the emissions? Uh, what happens? And we did something much simpler, which is that we looked at history. We looked mm -hmm. uh, at the time 1850 and then we looked at recent decades. And we asked ourselves, given that we have measured quite carefully how much the temperature's gone up, mm -hmm. given that we know pretty well how much energy is going into the ocean, which is the same as the sort of uh, amount by the by which the energy is out of balance at the top of the atmosphere. Right. And given that we know how the chemistry of the atmosphere has changed, mm -hmm. 
added carbon dioxide, added methane, added greenhouse gases, but also added dust and particles from all this burning. Right. We have a pretty good handle on um, what the energy imbalance ought to be, so we call that the forcing. It's a little bit like the push that you would give to a pendulum. And those three things, given those three numbers, mm -hmm. the temperature change, the forcing, um, that is due to the change in composition and the actual amount of energy that's being taken up, the imbalance, you can figure out um, what the committed warming would be. Mm -hmm. It turns out that our answers aren't substantially different than the um, climate models would give you, but what that really means is that we understand that problem pretty well. Right. Which is good. That, knowing that we understand that problem at least a little well, like at least gives us something to work from. Absolutely. One, one of the things that I keep hearing people uh, bring up, or that I keep a number that I keep seeing come up in conversations, is the 1.5 Celsius. Right. So the the um, conference of parties that you talked about. Mm -hmm. The last one was in Paris. So you'll often hear about this Paris Agreement, mm -hmm. and the targets there, the goals, the societal goals, are to keep emissions, or sorry, to keep warming mm -hmm. below um, two degrees centigrade and ideally one and a half degrees centigrade. And those are targets that are based on, um, partly on the rate at which the climate will warm. So those are right. relatively large swings in the global mean temperature. They're comparable to, for example, the difference between now and an ice age. Right. Um, and which I'll just remind big, you that. Which is a big gap. Which is a big gap. Um, <laughs> You may or may not know that Long Island, where we're sitting, um, mm -hmm. even in Brooklyn, um, is the basically the dirt pile that was pushed by a glacier that started at the North Pole and came all the way down here and ended just offshore. And so this, uh, the reason it's so flat and sandy on Long Island is that that's a, a big dirt pile from a, from a, an enormous glacier. Okay. So definitely um, didn't know that. Fun fact for the day. Um, wow. So part of the problem is that that's a relatively large shift in temperature, mm -hmm. but part of the problem is that it's happening really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So um, one and a half degrees brings with it sea level rise. Some mm -hmm. of that's because the ocean gets warmer and it expands. Some of it's because ice that's locked up in glaciers on the land melts and flows into the sea and fills right. it up. Um, so I live in Red Hook in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. That's a very low-lying area. As you know, we flooded during um, Hurricane Sandy, but we get yes. uh, smaller inundations actually fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, it's hard to build infrastructure that takes 20 or 30 years to keep right. pace with uh, temperature that's going up that fast. And what causes that? Like, why is the momentum as quick as it is? So the, the, the momentum is the fact that it'll take, we, we looked at sort of two timescales. We looked at kind of the end of the century, what we think of as being a human timescale, mm -hmm. and then millennial, um, which we think as being like sort of a planetary or a geologic timescale. Mm -hmm. the, the first one, of course, is the one that really matters, and that's where we spent most of our time. Right. The second one's easier to do mathematically. That's why, right. it's, that's why it's interesting. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit more certain, uh, you could say. Mm -hmm. um, so. We were interested in this question of uh, how likely is it that we would reach a degree and a half by the end of the century? Mm -hmm. now, first thing to say is that that's a degree and a half since 1850. We've right. already warmed about a degree since 1850. Wow. Okay. Climate.nasa.gov is your friend there. They, they will show you, um, roughly speaking, what the global mean, the average, global average temperature is wow. on any given day. So it's only an additional half degree of warming since mm -hmm. now. Uh, uh, well, um, from now. But 
you know, if you look around the world, um, you'll see that we, it's very clear what the impacts of climate change are. One of them, for example, my, wine's a, uh, my wife, excuse me, is a wine journalist. Mm -hmm. the, and in most regions in the world, people have been growing wine for centuries. And if you ask anyone, anyone in any one of those places, they will tell you that they know now that their grapes ripen earlier, mm -hmm. the, um, that they have had to take out some grapes that like cold weather and put in warm weather, uh, warm weather grapes. Mm -hmm. um, so we've already seen this change, and we're talking about that magnitude of change not in 150 years, or sorry, roughly half that magnitude of change, not in 150 years, but in 75. Wow. So that's the urgency that one might take away from our study. So if it's this urgent, how long do we have until we need to turn out the lights, quote unquote? Well, one of the one of the calculations that we did, and, and it's very, it's uh, our calculation is very approximate, but it's very easy to change the assumptions that we make. So that's we think it's in that way kind of useful for people like politicians or policymakers where they might want to trade one thing off against another. Um, we. So a couple things happen. One is that mm -hmm. the dust particles go out of the air. Those mostly reflect the sunlight, and that makes um, and so they wash out real quick. They get rained out, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that makes the planet warmer. There's some of the greenhouse gases that don't live for very long. Things like methane, which have chemical reactions and get um, you know with the, the other chemicals in the atmosphere, they get removed. That mm -hmm. cools the planet a little bit. Um, and then some of the carbon dioxide, if we stop burning, the ocean's taking up energy, but it's also taking up carbon dioxide. Right. In a kind of a cool way, one of the ways that that happens is that um, bugs, diatoms, build their skeletons out of carbon dioxide. And then they, they, when they die, they sink, and that's what chalk is. Really? True. Um, like limestone cliffs of Dover are, uh, you know, uh, millions, or, uh, millions of years of um, uh, diatoms from the ocean. But um, so that's one of the uh, so the ocean will continue to sort of take up this carbon dioxide. Right. So if you, and that acts to cool the planet to put a little break on. Mm -hmm. All those things taken into account, we have until about 2052 mm -hmm. before we reach a 50/50 chance of breaking one and a half degrees centigrade by the end of this century. Wow. So the, what do we do? Well, what do we do is all the things that the politicians and the social scientists know. I mean, it, there are many ways to, ca to do emissions, to reduce emissions, which I, I won't belabor because people know them. There's some hope, uh, and I have a friend who's a director of a sort of a climate solutions center in the UK. Mm -hmm. There's some hope that we'll be able to more actively take carbon dioxide and other greenhouses out of the air. Um, there's a lot riding on that hope because mm -hmm. if we don't do that, then we rely on geology and biology to do that. And the, that takes, thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming here today and for having this conversation. So many of us are looking for this information and so, it just, it really helps to sit down with a scientist and hear it straight. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up, the Assistant Commissioner for the NYC Department of Veterans Services. <music> veterans Day is on Saturday. And when I think about veterans, I think about their service and the services they do or don't receive. These brave individuals are largely removed from the politics that, deter that determine their fates, but they, arguably more than anyone else, can experience the full force of the decisions we make. The VA gets a lot of flack for how it handles its affairs, but they're not the only game in town. There's also the NYC Department of Veterans Services, and we have with us its Assistant Commissioner, Jamal Othman to talk about veteran struggles and finding peace after war. 
Jamal, welcome to 112BK. Well, thank you for having me, Ashley. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you start by just telling me what you do in your role for veterans? Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So, um, as the Assistant Commissioner for Education, Employment, Entrepreneurship, Events, and Engagement, um, my priority is to ensure that veterans has, have the best economic opportunities to uh, successfully transition from their military service to their civilian communities here in New York City. And we do that by connecting them to employment services, education resources, and we also have programs to assist them should they want to start their own business. Mm -hmm. And you are a Marine. I right? am. I'm a proud Marine. I served uh, from 1993 to 1997. Mm -hmm. uh, was separated. Got my honorable discharge. Mm -hmm. uh, went to college on the GI Bill right here in Brooklyn at St. Francis College, and um, for the last 20 years struggled with the transition that many veterans are struggling with now, especially the post 9/11 veterans. Right. That's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about um, specifically is how your service helped you in your job now. Because I have to expect that just by going through the process, you have a perspective that people who haven't wouldn't. And so you're able to help veterans on you know a much deeper level because you know exactly what they need, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, the Department of Defense, the military, does an absolutely phenomenal job by taking young men and women who are smart, bright, have few skills, mm -hmm. and are very impressionable, and in a short amount of time, getting them trained on skills, on leadership, on responsibility, on accountability, mm -hmm. and then they spend anywhere from four to 20 years in a military lifestyle. Unfortunately, we don't see that same investment as they transition and separate out of the military. Right. And that transition can be traumatic mm -hmm. in itself, not to mention the other experiences going on within the military, whether it's combat or whether it's working in a, a high hazard uh, military occupational specialty. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of challenges uh, that veterans face, and every veteran has their transition journey. Yes. And that's what our department is about. We're here to be part of every component of their transition journey. And how specifically um, is that working out right here in Brooklyn for veterans who are coming back or maybe, you know, I don't know, are just like re-entering society as civilians? How are we helping them here? Well, specifically in Brooklyn, we're doing a couple of things. First mm -hmm. off, Brooklyn is the, uh, has the second largest population of veterans in all the five boroughs, wow. followed by Queens. So it's a significant population here. Um, so one of the first things we do is we work very closely with local military installations. We work very closely with Fort Hamilton and its commander. Mm -hmm. um, so to help identify veterans before they become veterans, mm -hmm. we want to know where they're coming from. We want to anticipate and be able to prepare as they separate and get them to help mitigate before they have some of the challenges that a lot of veterans have today, such as homelessness, or you know issues with employment or mental health. Um, so trying to connect with them early and often is one of the things that we're working at doing, and we're doing that by working with military installations starting right here in Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. I think the second thing is we're taking the fight to the veterans. And what, what I mean by that is previously, and in many state and local, 
veteran service agencies, they usually have some sort of main office where veterans are expected to go to. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we did that's quite unique is we created satellite sites in each of the five boroughs. So now each borough has its own specific site. Correct. That veterans can go that's to. That's right. And we just opened one here about six months ago, uh, uh, collaborating with Workforce One, which uh-huh. is a component of Small Business Services, our sister agency. Mm-hmm. And working very closely with them, we've embedded a veteran specialist who works with Workforce One. So they help veterans with the employment side, we help veterans with everything else. That's wonderful. That's something that I hear a lot of people are worried about, specifically when it comes to veterans, is the joblessness, um, homelessness, and also you hear people talking about PTSD um, and people who are living with that quite often. So I'm just wondering, like, how serious is that problem in NYC, especially compared to, you know, national numbers? Are veterans dealing with these things, like, at a higher level? Well, with, with regard to uh, PTSD and, and mental illness, um, you know, PTSD is the human body's response and adaptation to stress. Yes. So it, it could occur to someone who served in combat, it could it occur to a veteran who hasn't served in combat but maybe have seen or experienced something traumatic. It happens to uh, domestic violence victims and children. So anyone could experience PTSD. Um, specifically for veterans, though, that's something um, that we are specifically working toward with working with the First Lady and Thrive NYC. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a program called Vets Thrive NYC, which uh, works with a series of veteran service organizations here in New York City, specifically targeting mental health among veterans. But this is a challenge with, with veterans because of the culture that many as veterans are part of we would never darken the door of a clinical office. Right. We would never show up to the office of psychiatrists and say, hey, I have a mental health problem. Right. So we need to, we need to uh, um, interact with them in other ways. And one of the ways we do that is what we call with the core four, um, our core four system. And that's something that was uniquely developed by our commissioner, uh, Brigadier General, uh, Dr. Lori Sutton. And, and we go to engage with veterans at multiple levels. Uh, one way we engage with them is through peer-to-peer um, interactions, that one-on-one uh, um, mentoring. Uh, another way is by providing um, alternative therapies, such as equine therapy or animal therapy. Wow. Uh, another important area is arts. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so we try to engage veterans in multiple areas when it comes to mental health because once you start developing those relationships, then you start finding out what are the challenges they're facing from that aspect and how to connect them to the appropriate service. And then you mitigate what unfortunately has become, and you hear about this all the time, the the terrible uh, uh, suicide rate that we hear among veterans, 20 a day. So we can prevent that by providing these services ahead of time and by sort of fostering a culture where it's not scary and where it doesn't, you know, they don't feel like it undermines them in any way to ask for help or to talk about needing help, which 
is amazing. And you know, thank you so much for being here. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I wish we could talk about this more. Um, it's so important, but thank you. And we'll pr probably try to have you back sometime to keep talking about Thank you about so this. much, Ashley. It was a pleasure to talk about these very important issues. And I just want to wish all my fellow veterans a very happy Veterans Day this Saturday. And I look forward to marching in the Veterans Day parade and seeing a lot of my brothers and sisters there. Thank you so much, Jamal. Thank you, Ashley. Next, more on veterans, black veterans to be precise, featured in a powerful film festival at BAM, so don't go away. The colored, the white, see they want one army. You can forget that, CJ. White folks ain't never gonna integrate no army. I never once saw my boys fighting over there for this country in a film, in a picture. And the influence of that screen cannot be overestimated, do you understand me? All my tomorrows was based on America getting better. What if it doesn't? It's hard to separate talking about veterans from talking about patriotism. And there's a paradox when it comes to black veterans. Hell, when it comes to all African Americans. But for those who've served in overseas wars, it's particularly acute. They fought to promote American-style freedoms when they, were, when they were themselves denied such freedoms at home. A film festival screening this weekend at BAM explores these issues, among others. It's called Strange Victories, Black Soldiers in World War II. And the programmer is with us now. Ashley Clark, welcome to 112BK. Hi, good to be here. So fantastic to have you, not just because we share a name, but also <laughs> because this is just of great interest to me. Can you start by just telling me why this program and why now? Well, yeah, so first of all, the, f the festival runs from the 10th to the 16th mm -hmm. uh, over at BAM Cinematheque on Lafayette. Um, and it's a mixture of kind of contemporary and, and, and classic films and documentaries. Mm -hmm. the, the big inspiration for it is a film called Mudbound, um, directed by a filmmaker called Dee Reese, um, who made a Brooklyn classic called Pariah. Yes. Um, and this film, I saw it first back in, in Sundance mm -hmm. in January, uh, just a couple of days after the presidential election. Uh, and this film is a, a World War II epic. And one of the key characters is a young black guy called Ronzel, mm -hmm. um, who is a part of a, a family of, of share tenants in the South. Mm -hmm. And the film's all about their relationships with a white family um, and who, who own that land. Mm -hmm. And young Ronzel uh, goes off to fight uh, right. for America against fascism uh, overseas. And when he comes back, of course, uh, he, you know, he's fighting a different battle. So he's, he's uh, overseas in a segregated unit fighting fascism, and he comes home to Jim Crow America, right. uh, where the battle, as Dee Reese says herself, is, uh, is bloodier at home mm -hmm. in many ways. And, and I saw that, and that's where the seed kind of was planted for this festival. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting um, subject to explore, that, that twin battle. Right. Well, at the very least, a twin battle, you know, it's a treble, least. quadruple battle. Yes. Um, and I thought, as in my role as a, a programmer of classic and repertory cinema, mm -hmm. um, wouldn't it be interesting to bring together uh, a, a vast range of films that have addressed these, this subject and kind of put them in dialogue with each other and try and get a conversation going right. um, at a time when this stuff is really urgent today? Yes, it's incredibly urgent today. This conversation that we're having about um, patriotism and blackness and how those two things come together, I mean, it's incredibly relevant, right? Yeah, I mean, well, unfortunately, with a lot of films that deal with, with American racism, whether it's uh, um, Fruitvale Station or, mm -hmm. or Malcolm X, which began with the beating of, of Rodney King, right. you know, these films have, have been released across decades, and they're always timely, right? Yes. Um, so it's no, it's no surprise, sadly, that this is timely. But of course, with what's been happening with, with Colin Kaepernick uh, as the most high-profile example, um, and these 
egregious ideas about Colin Kaepernick and people taking a knee, somehow disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the troops, okay. and, and the meaning of that protest being perverted, um, it's a huge part of, of the discussion that we're having. And I do hope that people see these films as not artifacts from a bygone era, mm -hmm. but as things that have real lasting value and can, can kind of spark our thinking today. What are some of the highlights of the festival? Well, the, the title uh, of the program is, is Strange Victories, mm -hmm. and that's taken from a, a remarkable documentary from 1948. So it's a post-war documentary, very radical, very avant-garde editing, um, and it's directed by a guy called Leo Hurwitz, who was mm -hmm. a famous uh, left-wing left filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And this film is all about the idea of post-triumphalism America, where, where racism and anti-Semitism and sexism, gender inequality still exists right. um, in the immediate post-triumph era and this mm -hmm. is from 1948 this is another film you're watching it today and you think you know I, this could have come out yes. last week uh, and that right. film is playing with um, a film called illusions by a director called Julie Dash mm -hmm. uh, who's famous for being the the oh, first yeah. um, African-American woman to have a feature released Daughters in the US the Daughters of the Dust mm -hmm. and this film is a film from 1982 uh, mm -hmm. but it's set in 1942 so it's set in wartime um, and it's about the, the Hollywood Dream Factory and how these illusions are created and how powerful uh, images are in, in setting a national narrative. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's really central to what, what cinema does and why what I feel I do uh, is playing a part in something important because these, these messages and representations are so deliberate. So these films are part of the, I guess, the drive to subvert that and challenge that dominant narrative. Why is it so important to be having that conversation right here in Brooklyn? Because there are, I mean, there are, you know, countless descendants of veterans here mm -hmm. in, in this community. You know, this, this is a, an amazing uh, district area with a tremendous African-American history. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's really important for us as an institution to be showing that we care about these these people, you Absolutely. know, our people. Yes. You know, and I, and I say our people, uh, being a Brit, you know, mm -hmm. being back home in the UK, our black soldiers from, mm -hmm. from the Caribbean uh, right. and, and beyond, we're not adequately represented either. You know, and I just feel that there's so many descendants from the Caribbean here too. Uh, it just feels local as well as national. And I think right. it's really important that us as an institution are engaging with that kind of thing. Well, people are going to be very excited about this, okay? Yeah. Every person who's tuning in is probably right now wondering how they can get tickets. Can you tell them? Uh, BAM.org mm -hmm. um, forward slash strange uh, hyphen victories mm -hmm. or BAM.org if you're struggling with that second part. Right. But you, or you can just go into the box office as well, uh, which is open at 4 p.m. daily and find tickets there. Well, thank you so much for being here and for talking to us about this. Thank I'm you. probably going to be checking that out this weekend, so I really appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back next week with more on the DNA info and Gothamist situation, the Me Too campaign, and Brooklyn's Uzbek community. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Farhi, Emily Bogosian, Naim Van, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hawksog. Our executive producers are Aziz Aishan, Jonathan Lee, and Sasha Mathias. And our theme music is composed by Bradley Parker.